sorry. <laughs> for the benefit of people online, hello and welcome to the Institute for Government um, to discuss uh, is the government's industrial strategy working? And my name is Gemma Tetlow. I'm Chief Economist here at the Institute for Government. I'm really delighted to be joined by Andy Haldane, who is Chief Economist at the Bank of England, but today is here in his capacity as Chair of the Industrial Strategy Council, which was set up back in 2018 to perform a sort of evaluation function on the government's industrial strategy, assessing the extent to which it is delivering uh, on its objectives. So we have Andy. On my left is Kate Barker, um, who has had many hats over the years, but at the moment is uh, one of the members of the National Infrastructure Commission, as well as being one of the members of the Industrial Strategy Council. And on my right is Matthew Taylor, um, who is well known for having led the Taylor <coughs> Review into Modern Work Practices, um, but is Chief Executive of the RSA and also a member of the Industrial Strategy Council. Um, so we'll kick off with a brief presentation from Andy of the new report that has come out this morning, the first uh, annual assessment looking at the government's industrial strategy. Um, we'll then have short opening remarks from Kate and from Matthew on some of the aspects that they're particularly interested in, and then we'll have plenty of time for you to all ask questions of them. So Andy, please kick us off. Thank you, uh, thank you, Gemma, uh, for that introduction. Uh, morning, everyone, um, and thank you to the Institute for Government for hosting us. I think we're better actually to be hosting an event on this issue, industrial strategy, and um, thank you all for turning up um, so early. Uh, as Gemma mentioned, I'm here speaking today, not with my day hat on at the Bank of England, but my, my night job uh, as chair of the government's industrial strategy council. I'm delighted that uh, I'm joined by two of the council members, actually three. Uh, Kate and Matthew on the stage and, and Rupert here uh, on the floor. Um, as Gemma mentioned, the council was created back in November 2018 as part of a set of commitments made by the government in its uh, 2017 uh, white paper on industrial strategy. And what the council's role is, is to serve as an independent uh, evaluator of the success of that industrial strategy in meeting its longer-term objectives around boosting pay uh, and productivity uh, in the economy. And it's to that end that, again, as Gemma mentioned, we're publishing uh, today our first annual report uh, as required of us in our terms of reference uh, set by our co-sponsors, uh, the Chancellor and the Business Secretary. The new Chancellor and new Business Secretary, in fact. <laughs> Um, and the report's available as of about five minutes ago uh, on our website, that's www.industrialstrategycouncil.org. I thought in these opening remarks what I would do is just highlight one or two of the key themes uh, from that report, uh, not least to save you all having to read or indeed print uh, the 60 plus pages uh, we've just put out. So the title uh, of today's event, as you all know, is Is the Government's Industrial Strategy Working? Uh, question mark. And actually, uh, there's a surprisingly easy answer uh, to that. It's in fact the same answer that uh, purportedly was given uh, by Chinese Premier Zhu Enlai when he was asked in the 1970s about the success of the French Revolution. And he replied, you know, almost two centuries on, uh, bear in mind, that it was still a little uh, too soon to say. So, well, a mere two years into the industrial strategy, uh, it is simply too early to tell for sure whether that strategy 
uh, is paying dividends for the economy. That's the inevitable consequence of the rather deep-seated structural problems that that strategy was designed to uh, tackle, but also the lengthy period it typically takes for policies to make inroads uh, into those self-same problems. Nonetheless, there's still plenty to talk about, uh, about how the government's industrial strategy has progressed to date, uh, and to reflect indeed on how that strategy might need to be adapted to meet the challenges uh, of tomorrow, and that's what really today's report is aiming to do. So let me make a couple of points about the overall design and implementation of that strategy before turning to, to one or two more specific aspects of it, specifically uh, around R&D, around skills, uh, and around the crucial issue of place. I think the first point to make is that the very fact that the government back in 2017 uh, set out and put in place a strategy, a strategy for industrial policy was, the council believes, a very positive step forward. Industrial policies have seen something of a resurgence in advanced economies over recent years, with an increasing international acceptance, both among academics and among policymakers, of their importance. And there's also increasing evidence, empirical evidence, to support their efficacy, provided they are appropriately designed and implemented. And the importance of these policies has recently been reaffirmed, indeed I would say uh, escalated and accelerated uh, by the new government here in the UK. Combining these industrial policies into an integrated strategy rather than a piecemeal set of policies is also, in the Council's view, a positive step, as deal usually beats no deal. Strategy usually beats no strategy. Another positive, I think, is that uh, despite other distractions, good progress has been made by the government in implementing the policies outlined in that 2017 uh, white paper on industrial strategy. In producing today's report, uh, the council totted up the policy commitments in that white paper. And as best we can tell, and it's quite revealing, it's quite difficult to be precise, uh, they total an eye-popping 142 separate initiatives. And the good news is that, as we set out in the annex to the report, the majority of those policies have progressed to implementation stage, albeit that's often the fairly early stages uh, of implementation. Now, the broader question this poses, of course, is whether these many and various policies, even once implemented, are likely to have a material impact uh, on pay, on productivity, and all other things bright and beautiful at the macro uh, level. To do so, it's clear they would need to have at least two essential ingredients. First, longevity, uh, and second, scale. Now, on the first of those, it's simply too early to judge. On the second, the council's identified around £45 billion of financing attached to the various industrial strategy initiatives, mostly financed through the National Productivity Investment Fund and spread over a number of years. That's a pretty 
healthy sum. The majority of that financing, around three quarters, is assigned to a small number of signature initiatives around R&D, around housing, and around transport. This means these particular initiatives are potentially operating at scale. It also means, of course, the majority by number of those other 100-odd policy initiatives in the white paper have modest and, in some cases, uh, no money uh, attached to them. This means it's implausible to imagine many of them could be contributing significantly to meeting the UK's pay and productivity challenges. More generally, I think the very span and scope of these initiatives begs a wider question about their likely uh, effectiveness. One of the touchstones of good strategy uh, is prioritization, and with the best role in the world, it's difficult to have 142 priorities. Another of the touchstones of good strategy is coordination, and one of the key new features in the 2017 Industrial Strategy White Paper were the so-called uh, grand uh, challenges. These were policy initiatives which aimed to tackle some of the key economic and societal uh, megatrends uh, of the day, from climate change to automation to an aging society. The grand challenges are examples of a so-called mission-oriented approach to industrial policy. And one of the great merits of this approach, I think, is that it naturally cross-cuts many different aspects uh, of policy and hence requires, for its success, a significant degree of cross-departmental uh, policy coordination. As the Institute for Government has repeatedly pointed out, this is not something that always comes very naturally across uh, Whitehall. And the evidence so far uh, of the industrial strategy uh, is that it's achieved uh, some but relatively modest gains in encouraging greater such policy coordination. And perhaps in part reflecting that, the grand challenges are perhaps the aspect of the industrial strategy that has made uh, least progress so far, certainly relative to the scale uh, of these challenges. Um, that's, that's a shame, given how pressing some of those challenges are, not the least of which, of course, is the net zero target. It also feels like a bit of a missed opportunity, or more positively, an opportunity not yet taken to increase the degree of focus, scale, and indeed coordination of industrial policies. In the Council's view, all this points strongly to the need for some refresh and reprioritization of the industrial strategy, perhaps with the grand challenges assuming center stage in priority and financing. Having an industrial strategy that is more tightly focused on a core set of grand challenges, which is financed at scale, coordinated across government, and committed to over the longer term, would not only improve the chances of the strategy meeting its longer term objectives, it would also make it easier for people, people like us, to understand, uh, engage with, and support that strategy, which has been a missing ingredient so far, thereby increasing its transparency, accountability, and chances uh, of success. I should say in passing, 
and as part of any refresh, I think there'd also be value in looking at the role of the council itself in supporting that strategy. At present, as we set out in section one of the report, relative to equivalent bodies elsewhere in the UK and internationally, the council has no statutory underpinning uh, and very modest uh, resources. One of the signature policies in the industrial strategy in 2017 uh, was a target for UK R&D spending set at 2.4% of GDP, that's the OECD average, uh, by 2027. Having a numerical target for R&D is, the Council believes, a positive step. As strategy beats no strategy, a target often beats no target. With UK R&D spending run, running currently at around 1.7% of GDP, it's also an ambitious target based uh, on trends at least over the past 10 years, it would be 2050 before a 2.5% R&D target would be hit in the UK. Meeting this target by 2027, then, will require a step up in R&D spending by both the public uh, and private sectors. The good news here is that the government has already made some commitments to increase uh, its R&D spending materially, including through the Industrial Strategy Challenge Fund. As well as stepping up the scale of public R&D, we'll need to be a greater focus on that spending uh, which best is able to crowd in uh, private sector R&D. And it'll be important too, I think, to support other uh, innovation-boosting policies. In this respect, uh, the Council uh, is encouraged about proposals for establishing an advanced research agency here in the UK, akin to the US uh, ARPA. The US's uh, Advanced Research Projects Agency has, over several decades now, played a key role in supporting the research and technology base uh, in the US. The issue of skills has also risen up the government's policy agenda recently, with an extra £3 billion recently provided through a new national skills uh, fund. This is needed. A research report from the Council last year quantified the very considerable skills challenge facing the UK today, and the even larger challenge facing the UK tomorrow. On current policies, Almost two-thirds of the UK workforce will have skills which are misaligned with their jobs by the end of this decade. Existing initiatives uh, from T-levels to the National Retraining Scheme to the new apprenticeship system seem, seem unlikely on their current trajectory and scale to meet this skills challenge. For example, in the report, we discuss the effects of recent changes in the UK apprentice system which, while encouraging greater amounts of higher level training, has lowered the number of apprentice programs overall and has left many firms using only a fraction of the funding available to them. The Council believes that removing some of the inflexibilities in that system, alongside other efforts to support further education, vocational training and lifelong learning, will be essential if the UK's skills deficit is not to widen uh, further. Finally, 
Let me say a quick word about regional disparities and regional policies. Place played a central role in the 2017 Industrial Strategy White Paper and has risen to the very top of the inbox of the new government with its levelling up agenda. As the research report issued by the Council earlier this month made clear, it's not difficult to see why this has happened. Regional differences in the UK are very large by either international or historical uh, comparison. That report also provided some insights into the necessary ingredients of a successful regional policy to redress these regional uh, imbalances. That typically calls for a regional strategy which is applied consistently, financed at scale, focused on those areas left behind, and coordinated across the different arms of policy. And to those, you might add the importance of building capacity and capability at the local level and among civic institutions to deliver this plan. So far, as part of the 2017 Industrial Strategy, 36 local enterprise partnerships and combined authorities across the UK were asked to draw up local industrial strategies and to publish them by early 2020. While some have already done so, that deadline looks unlikely to be met uh, by most. More generally, the fate of the local industrial strategies themselves, how they will be acted on and brought together, remains uncertain as things stand. There's certainly a risk that these local strategies fall victim to the same chopping and changing that has hallmarked UK regional policy since at least the Second World War, and which has contributed importantly to that widening of regional imbalances across the UK. The periodic uprooting of civic institutions and the accompanying loss of institutional memory has also been a familiar refrain from the Institute for Government over a number of years now. It's a telling one when it comes to issues of place. A structured, costed, integrated plan for levelling up the UK, which is part of which helped build the local capacity and civic institutions necessary to deliver that plan, could break this doom loop of disappointed regional expectations. And the Council would very much welcome such a plan, would be help, happy to help the new government in whatever way necessary to help design and deliver it. Let me uh, conclude, uh, Gemma. From the productivity puzzle to the climate crisis, from the skills challenge to the levelling up opportunity, these are grand challenges indeed. And as things stand, and despite good progress, the current industrial strategy seems unlikely on current plans to be able to rise fully to meet those challenges and to seize some of the equally grand opportunities for revitalising the economy. The Council believes the new government, if armed with a refreshed and renewed industrial strategy, could do so. And as today's report makes clear, the Industrial Strategy Council stands ready to offer whatever help is required to design and deliver that strategy. Thank you all for listening. Let me stop there. Thank you, Andy. Kate, let's come to you next.
Thank you very much. Um, I'm not going to get up, mostly because I couldn't get past Andy's legs. So <laughs> I'm as well at the tiny stage. It's really good to be launching this report, um, not least because I think the people have wondered whether, what the Industrial Council was up to, despite the papers that we published over the last year. And for me, the important points in the report are about the work we have done in setting out metrics, how we're going to judge the success of this strategy, which is necessarily going to take place over a long period. It's clear indeed that the question that we're asked at, for this session today is being asked rather early. And secondly, the work that we're doing on implementation, which Andy's also talked about. And that's important because you look back at the past, we've had industrial strategies before, and the problem is they haven't always been fulfilled. And that's why we're in a sense, in talking about refreshing the strategy, we're not really talking about going back and back and starting it back and starting again. Inevitably, we have come across um, gaps, but equally, you don't want the industrial strategy to become a great um, to become a great theory of everything. One of the things I thought was interesting about the metrics we chose, and it's highlighted actually in the report, is the one about trust—the trust that people have in each other, or the trust that people have in institutions. And that's to bring home the fact that the new kind of industrial strategy that we have today isn't just one of these sort of Fordist focuses on productivity, even though that's very important, but it does also step aside to think about inclusivity and well-being. And trust is really important also if we're thinking about policy consistency. I think one of the things that destroys trust among people generally, or indeed among the um, place-based policies in the UK, is an inability to trust that what you're told today and the funding you're told you'll get today has, dis has disappeared tomorrow. But I just wanted to embroider a little bit on the themes of R&D and of place which Andy's already talked about, partly because we talked about both those themes in the previous body, the body that I chaired, which was unhelpfully called the Industrial Strategy Commission. This has led a lot of people to believe I'm chairing the Industrial Strategy Council, so I spend a bit of my time explaining that I'm not Andy Haldane. <laughs> Um, although you'd thought the difference was obvious, but anyway. Um, but the, the, the point, one of the points that we made in that previous work, which, uh, on which um, commission I had at one of the members was Professor, Professor Richard Jones, whose work has been picking up quite a bit of attention lately, was about the diffusion of innovation. And Richard, of course, brings together in his work both a commentary about the lack of R&D and what could be done not just to make R&D rise up in, in the, in the 2. to the 2.4, but also in some sense to become more useful because it becomes more embedded, and actually the point that this could, be, could play into the economies of place by actually spreading around where the R&D is done. And given the nature of the industrial structure against the spatial structure of the UK, spreading it around is probably quite important if we're interested in embedding, in embedding innovation. And one of his other points, of course, is that we tend to have tended in the past to think about R&D very much on the supply side, and we need to think more about it from the demand side so that public procurement is directed at um, stimulating R&D further, further back down the supply chain. And Richard's um, discussion and talk about moving research out of the um, Golden Triangle is reflected in a, something I, which I do show, which is the panel which, dis which has been looking at where grants should go for something called the Strength in Places Fund, which is aimed at um, fo funding research, it's a UKRI initiative, and it aims at funding research which is both 
place-based outside the Golden Triangle and is aimed at universities working with business. The bids can come from business or from universities, but they have to involve both. I found this a hugely exciting thing to chair because it has convinced me that there is really good work and really good ideas outside the Golden Triangle. And I'm really looking forward to the first wave of things that we have recommended for funding being announced, which would be nice, and then the funding, and then the funding falling in. I th when you think about place, however, it's not going to be just, it's not just about industry and moving industries on, as important as it is. And the evidence review that we published made it really clear how complicated the picture is. Places have different histories, geospatial characteristics, demographic factors, importantly, and endowments of skills and cultural assets. We also touch on the sort of well-known um, sort of dichotomy that people in London are better off but appear to be more unhappy, and people in Northern Ireland are not terribly well off but appear to have high levels of well-being. Of course, this doesn't mean that um, money, doesn't make you, money doesn't make you happy, um, it's, it, but it, what it does mean is that well-being and inclusivity in places is about more than just productivity, and the trade-offs between efficiency and equity sometimes need to be thought of. It also, I think, tells you something we all know about London, which is that London isn't just the bit we're in now. It's also places like um, Barking and Dagenham on the outsides who have, who have much greater difficulties. And some of the work we did on place echoes some of the themes that we picked up in the National Infrastructure Commission, which I think are worth mentioning again today, which is that localities have to spend far too much time bidding to central government for funding because they're under-resourced in their own areas in being able to decide for themselves what their priorities are and fund those. So they spend a lot of time trying to bend the things that they think are important into what the government's invited them to bid for. And this seems to me very unhelpful. I was interested in the local industrial strategies, which do set out in most places quite a clear picture of things they'd like to do. Most of them, however, are a little bit weak on what they think of might be the desired outcomes. If you go to the back and look at evaluation, those things are quite short and they suggest that, they, that the outcomes will come along, will come along later. Cambridge and Peterborough is um, unique in this because they signed up to doubling GVA by 2045. That's a rather vague overall aspiration, but from the work I've done in that area, I can tell you that it's proved to be quite motivating um, that, people have taken that people have taken that seriously and they will judge themselves by it. Although, given the shenanigans about transport there this week, it's not necessarily yet an example of good local, good local governments. So I think national policy has much more to do to mesh with local needs much more to do to empower and build capacity in areas to develop and flex their visions. But frankly, this is going to be a long process, and it's often going to be painful. But every time I go back to my hometown, which most of you will know is Stoke-on-Trent, I think we really, really have to get on with this. Thank you, Kate. Matthew? Uh, yeah, just a couple of points um, before we get into the conversation. Uh, the first one really is to, is to reinforce what Kate has said in terms of the kind of win-wins that come from a kind of more holistic approach to industrial strategy. And uh, one of the things that I have kind of focused on, particularly in my role, is the area of work um, and uh, good work. Uh, and to draw your attention to um, a research report that was published by uh, the RSA and uh, Carnegie UK Trust a few weeks ago, which Andy um, generously came to launch at the RSA. Um, and what that argued, that report, um, and I don't think the evidence is definitive, but I think it's 
you know, it, it's, it's certainly reasonably strong, um, is that good work and productivity are benignly linked, that if we can improve the quality of people's working lives um, in relation to the kind of standard dimensions of work quality, then we will also improve uh, their productivity. But I thought what was particularly interesting about the work that we published, which goes to this kind of win-win dimension, is that that correlation is massively uh, stronger at the bottom end of the labour market. Uh, indeed, actually, intriguingly, the research suggests that if work is too good, productivity falls away. So if your job is utterly perfect, uh, then you may not be being driven quite hard enough. Um, but, but whilst that's an interesting ambiguity, it's absolutely clear that at the bottom end, poor quality work and low productivity, uh, often implicated in that poor management, poor, poor, poor quality management, um, is, is a big issue for us. So, you know, I think in a time when people often feel rather kind of pessimistic and also when industrial strategy, as we've said, and even notions of productivity can feel sort of slightly cold, to be able to say to people, actually, the way in which we will, uh, one of the elements of industrial strategy, one of the ways in which we can boost productivity is actually improving how it feels for you every day when you go to work is an important, uh, an important message and, and one which I'm glad to say that the government uh, uh, continues to support. The second thing I wanted to say is simply that uh, um, Andy talked about skills. I just flag up the next few months are going to be very important in relation to the skills agenda. We've got a review of the apprenticeship uh, system. We've got uh, T-levels coming down the track. We've got the possibility of extra investment uh, through the budget. So. I would just say it's important that when we think about the skills, our approach to skills, that we are bringing these big strands of work together in a overall, in a coherent overall way. I think there's a big opportunity, but there's also a slight danger that these different strands of work, which have, uh, don't necessarily dock. So I would just kind of say it's, it's uh, urged the government to try to think hard about how these different elements of, of, of the skills picture fit together. And the final thing I wanted to say, which you know, might be slightly self-indulgent, but I am at the Institute for Government, so uh, I, I want to be a little bit kind of nerdy, really. Um, I, I'm making my own contribution to the, to the UK's fantastic employment record by having multiple jobs. And um, uh, as well as being on the Industrial Strategy Council and running the RSA, I'm also, one and a half days a week, uh, the Director of Labour Market Enforcement, or should I say Interim Director of Labour Market Enforcement for the government. So... I do spend quite a lot of my time um, looking at the relationship between government policy and real-world change. Um, and I'm just going to share a reflection on that, which goes to what I think is the value of the council. So having been in the kind of policy world for a very long time and worked in Downing Street, run think tanks, etc., etc., I kind of become rather interested in policy failure. Um, and um, policy fails a lot, basically. Sometimes it kind of fails heroically, catastrophically. Um, uh, we can all name the examples. Uh, more often it fails because um, whilst ministerial attention and priorities and budgets are being addressed towards something, a change occurs, but once the attention shifts, the focus shifts, then things revert to how they were before. So there is no underlying systemic change achieved. Uh, and my observation about that is that 
is that this reflects two non-trivial problems with uh, policy. And there are lots of trivial problems with policy, you know, just badly written or responding to headlines or whatever it might be. The non-trivial problems, which you say they're endemic in policy making, are firstly that policies often seek to influence individual variables in complex and dynamic systems um, in ways which are, it's difficult to predict the ways in which those interventions are going to uh, react to that system as a whole. And the second problem is a kind of path dependency, which has actually got two different characteristics. One is a kind of path dependency, which is it takes a long time to get a mandate to act. And then once you've got the mandate, you press on with something, even when the evidence starts to suggest it's not working. Um, and you move from trying to make it work to trying to prove that it works. I think Jeff Mulgan famously described this as the shift from evidence-based policy-making to policy-based evidence-making. Um, <laughs> But there's another form of path dependency, which is arguably even more tragic, which is an initiative is created. It doesn't initially work. It then starts to adapt and develop and does start to work, at which point the evaluation of the first phase comes out, which says it hasn't been working and politicians abandon it. Uh, and you would be surprised how often that occurs, actually. So I think one of the roles for us is to help to address those two failings. So on the one hand to continuously encourage the government to understand industrial strategy in a systemic way, to understand its interconnections. Uh, um, and then secondly, to encourage the government to uh, recognise when things might not be working and not simply to press on with them regardless, but also to encourage the government to see that things which might not initially have been working are starting now to work and the government should persist with them and adapt them because actually over time, and this goes back to one of Andy's key points, that kind of persistence, that longevity is the thing that's going to uh, make a difference. So I, I, I'm actually convinced that kind of bodies like this and uh, do play an important role in addressing those kind of systemic challenges around policy making. Thank you. Um, perhaps I can pick up um, with the point that you just finished with there. And Andy alluded in his opening remarks to the fact that we're only 15 months on from your first meeting, but already on to the third set of ministers that you are, in theory, reporting to. Um, is the current government as bought into this idea of having an independent evaluation body of their industrial strategy as the government that you originally set up by? <laughs> well, I suspect we might find out tomorrow. Maybe. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, I can start and then... Um, well, I mean, I think what is absolutely clear uh, from the new government is the priority it places on some, some of the central tenets of the initial strategy. Uh, I mean, if you look at the way that the regional stroke place, stroke levelling up agenda has gone through the gears over the last six months. Look at the way that the skills agenda has risen up the policy league table uh, over, uh, over that period. So, um, you know, standing aside from the role of the council, uh, in terms of the, the strategy itself and the policies underlying it, I think uh, my sense so far is that, um, as I said up there, uh, those policies have been escalated and accelerated, if anything, over the, uh, over the past six months. I'm not sure where. Um, okay, Matthew, thank you. Yeah, well, look, I would just reinforce the point I made before, which I think is our role is not to kind of stand outside throwing 
you know, thoughtful missiles at the government and saying, you know, this is good and this isn't good and we'll give you points out of 10 for this. It is trying to provide this kind of more engaged role of uh, um, working with what the government's trying to achieve <coughs> and encouraging them, as I say, to, to, to adopt the right approach to how it is you would achieve a strate strategic impact. And I, ho I hope that the report today is seen in that, in that light. Yeah, I mean, I think I hope, I'm really echoing the points that already been made that one of the things we can do is try to encourage some policy consistency. Mm -hmm. So I completely agree with you. Sometimes you have to give up, a, you really do have to give up a policy because you find it isn't working. But by and large, I think we have, I completely agree that we've given up policies too early. And I do think that is part, as I say, of what is eroded trust. But I also agree with Andy. I think the problem of the last year, which we all well know, is that people didn't really get on with policy because they were distracted by other things. And all the signs now are that people are going to get on with domestic policy. Um, one of the pillars of the industrial strategy is obviously the business environment. And one of the great uncertainties that's been hanging over the business environment for the last few years has been the future of the UK's relationship with Europe. And indeed, much of the, the promise of leaving the EU was greater control over the regulatory environment um, that might support a different type of approach to industrial strategy. How have you factored in in this first report the government's uh, policies and negotiations around Brexit? Shall I start again then? <laughs> um, uh, I mean, truth be told, uh, there are ample reports already mm. out there on all matters Brexit, and this is not one of them, and, and shouldn't be one of them. Uh, of course, uh, Brexit is important framing for a whole range of things around investment uh, and skills and infrastructure. Um, but ultimately, um, we have taken that as a given in our report and asked, you know, um, with or without Brexit, what will be needed nationally to do a better job on all of those core ingredients of improved productivity and pay, which includes all the things I mentioned, plus the important social capital dimension that, that, that Kay mentioned. I, th I think, you know, the if there's a broader point, it is that obviously what we want is for the government as a whole to be considering industrial strategy in relation to all the decisions that it makes. Um, and so, for example, if you take uh, today's news around uh, immigration, I think it's for us to say the policy is right or wrong. It's for us to, I think, encourage the government to consider the implications of that policy for industrial strategy and to put in place policies which accentuate the positive possibilities and mitigate the possible downsides. Thank you. Well, let's open up two questions from the audience. If there's anyone in the other room, do pop your head through the door. Um, we'll go there and then come over here. Uh, Paul Sweeney from the Centre for Cities. Uh, innovation, uh, I very much uh, intuitively agree in terms of trying to get innovation occurring elsewhere in the economy to try and help level up. Uh, a curious thing though about the, the Golden Triangle is that despite a lot of money going in and a lot of focus on the fact that a lot of money is spent there rather than elsewhere in the country, according to ONS figures, Oxford and Cambridge aren't particularly productive, certainly relative to a lot of other places in the UK. Two potential explanations of that is one, the ONS data is wrong, or two, um, money spent through universities on innovation doesn't have any impact locally, and so that isn't the answer in terms of trying to level up. I just want to get the panel's thoughts on that. And then get a second question over here. Thank you. Um, 
Robert Morland. Um, I'm actually on a regional board of the Canal and River Trust, but I'm also a former councillor and a former member of the European Parliament representing Stoke-on-Trent. Mm. So um, clearly the, most, the best comment this, this morning was from Kate. Um, but although there's a serious comment behind that because going back to the last point, you mentioned you have touched on Brexit. And my only comment here is on two or three of the areas you've talked about, the EU was very heavily involved, uh, regional uh, and research. So are you um, confident from what you've made forecasts on, or you related to forecasts on research that the funding that was coming from the EU will now definitely come from the UK. And also, of course, for example, on regional policy, where it's quite clear that the EU did have a strategy. It ha its, its areas it helped were based on the statistics of unemployment and income, and that's why um, Cornwall, South Wales, etc., were chosen for those criteria. Um, now, are you going to be happy that we're going to have criteria that will be fact-based on those kind of issues? I noticed you talked on research about more out of London, out of the southeast, but of course, a big contribution has made by three or four southeast universities, and you can't get away from it. Um, Kate, do you want to kick off? Um, well, I'll sort of have a go at Paul's question. I'm now trying desperately to recall in my mind the charts that we had in the report on the, on the Cambridgeshire and Peterborough region of the differences in productivity between Cambridge and sort of places like East Cambridgeshire, which have very low productivity, largely you know, ag agriculture. And, I mean, I, actually, the striking difference between Cambridge and somewhere like March and Chatteris is just uh, is, is amazing. But, I, I mean, I take your point, and I think, actually, that the... the one of the points about um, where I completely agree with Richard, and I'm sure you do, is the tremendous difference between what's happening in Oxford and Cambridge relative to their areas and what's happening in Sheffield with the Advanced Manufacturing Research Centre relative to that region because they're sort of set up for different reasons. So, I mean, I support what's done in Oxford and Cambridge because it's, you know, it's very, it's very high-quality research work. It adds often to... Um, global thought. It's interesting how many people from Oxford are appearing to talk about the coronavirus, for example, because that's where the expertise lies, a lot of medical research there. Clearly in Cambridge, very different kind of research, but, but quite top level, and the arrival of AstraZeneca is, of course, symptomatic to you know, what, it, what it does for the region. Cambridge itself is, I think, a pretty productive, pretty productive place. But, it's, but, the, but I think in both cases, apart from the spin-outs from the universities, it's fair to say that, they, that, they don't, that neither of those connect very well with their hinterlands. And that's why I think the other work that's being, being done to, to have a proper connection with the business hinterland from other universities that are perhaps more embedded, Sheffield, Manchester, I think, are examples of that, is really important and will help to bring up, the, bring up those areas. And I've really enjoyed, as I said, reading the Strength in Places Fund submissions because they talk about specifically how productivity could be increased in the industries they're trying to affect in those areas. And I think this is well worthwhile. I wish there was more money going into it. I, I just say one point, which I think that our places document, which we released what, a couple of weeks ago, yeah. I, I think you know, it, it makes an important contribution to this issue about kind of 
investment, whether it's regional or sub-regional investment. And I think underlines the need to have a realistic understanding of what it is possible to do in places which lack some of the kind of core resources that seem to be necessary to, to thrive. Now, that isn't a document, it's not our role to, to make kind of a set of policy suggestions, but I, I think that one of the things, if we are committed as, as, as a government, as Andy has said, to levelling up, it, is that in a sense, arguably in the past, our strategy implicitly has been a kind of combination of mitigation uh, and kind of almost magical thinking. You know, mitigation of the problems and magical thinking about the fact that places are suddenly going to leap, throw off all their disadvantages and become kind of global hubs. Uh, and I do think it's an opportunity, what that place document says is really we do need to be trying to think about how we help places turn round, but if we're going to do that, it's going to require more than you know, a quick dollop of money and some magical thinking, it's going to require some really serious and focused and long-term work and some pretty tough decisions, actually, about, you know, what is possible. Andy, do you have anything to add? Nothing to add to that. Okay. <laughs> wow, lots of questions this time around. So go to the lady there, um, and then we'll go to Paul. <coughs> Thank you. I'm Jennifer Dixon. I'm the Chief Executive of the Health Foundation. Um, just two quick things. The first one, very interested to hear about the metrics and well-being. Um, I wondered if you specifically considered any other um, health metrics. I asked because next week we publish the Marmot Review 10 years on, which looks at the health gap across the country. Uh, it's showing the health gap is widening between rich and poor. It's also showing that the gap between poor and poor is widening between the north and the south. So it matters, place matters on for health. So that's the first question, given that health is so important to work and productivity. Thank you. And the second point is really touching on what Matthew really said. Um, the kinds of comments that Andy said about um, the industrial strategy and joined up government coordination focus, could uh, thinking about the future, valuing the future, um, could uh, equally apply to many other issues like health, for example, how to improve health of the nation, the health stock, um, without which we won't flourish. Um, how? Given that this is, a, uh, this is quite a common issue, uh, joined upness, short-termism and all the rest of it. What, what do we really need to do? Is this inherent in our kind of democracy? Uh, do we need some other new vehicles? Do other countries do it better? How can we lock on to some of these long-term issues more forcefully than we have in the past, whether it's climate, flooding, health, whatever? Thank you. Wallace, I'm a journalist. Um, industrial strategy is based on the idea that government, particularly central government, can help. But if policies constantly change, one only has to think about what has happened with vocational education over the past three decades. Is that really possible? I'll take another couple of questions in this round because there were so many hands up. Um, so we'll go to Phil and go back over there. Phil Aldrick at the Times. Uh, can I get your initial reactions to the migration policy, uh, the government's migration policy, and particularly in the context of the productivity? Uh, you know, will, will it potentially help productivity? Um, and with regard to the refreshed industrial strategy that Andy was talking about, um, you mentioned there were 142 policies. Does this suggest that you're going to recommend at some point to trim it down to a core set of priorities? Great. And um, just the background of that front section. 
thank you, and I, uh, I'm John Earls from Unite the Union, and uh, I very much look forward to reading the report, but forgive me if it covers the two points I'm about to raise. Uh, when the Industrial Strategy Council was announced, the government drew particular attention to the objectives of creating high-quality jobs, which Matthew mentioned, but also boosting wages. Uh, and I wondered where the uh, council thought that strong labour market institutions such as trade unions and collective bargaining fitted into those objectives. And when the white paper was announced uh, and the strategy itself, it also introduced uh, a number of sector deals. And I wondered if the evaluation work that you had done thus far had looked at the sector deals and what a good sector deal would look like. Uh, yeah, I'll just take two or three points. I think I'm right in saying that we're going to be publishing something on sector deals. Yeah, soon. Soon. Next month. <laughs> uh, so that's an easy one. Um, uh, on the point on kind of labour market institutions, I, I, uh, I you know, personally agree. Uh, and there's going to be two levels to this. The, firstly, that you know, uh, trade unionism can be an important part of strong in workplace relations, and trade unions can play an important role in uh, encouraging good management um, and the evidence is that employee engagement is one of those factors that contributes to productivity you know as I say in these areas the evidence is complex but it's broadly seems to be in that direction I would just take this opportunity it's a bit of a hobby horse of mine but to uh, encourage people to be aware of the fact that quite a significant shift is going to occur on April the 1st as a consequence of my good work review uh, which is that there's going to be a very substantial threshold in um, the number of workers who are required to request the right to independent representation, information and consultation at work. That threshold was set by the Labour government at 10%, which was far too high, and th those opportunities were not taken up, partly because it's the same threshold as you know for trade union recognition. And so if trade unions are going to get 10%, they get it for recognition, not for consultation and information. That's going to go down to 2% now uh, with a de minimis threshold. And that should mean, if businesses and trade unions and government gets behind it, that we move to a situation where it is standard practice in workplaces, uh, organisations beyond a certain size, to have proper structures for workers to be represented independently and to get information and, and consultation on matters of strategic importance. So I think that could be an important shift in our kind of workplace norms, so uh, I'm positive about that. Sorry, I don't want to, to, to go on, but um, on immigration, look, I think the, the critical point is to think through, as I said earlier, what the implications of policy shifts might be. They are complex, so you can, you know, look at restrictions on uh, immigration, and they may have what might be seen as a benign effect, which is a kind of greater awareness of, from this is particularly from a kind of point of view of labour market compliance, of knowing who is here and why they are uh, here. Uh, conversely, one of the dangers is if you have labour market shortages and fewer legitimate routes, it provides incentives for those who will offer illegitimate routes for people to work here. And then thirdly, on my third hand, uh, as the government has suggested, I think, today, it may encourage organisations to invest in automation, something which would, you expect all other things be equal, boost productivity. 
I think the critical point I'd make is, first of all, we need to think through these scenarios. And secondly, we need to think realistically about the kind of support we need to give to organizations. So, you know, whilst it might ultimately be a benign thing to automate certain activities, if you particularly have a tight labor market and those activities are relatively low-skilled, low-wage activities, <clears throat> you need to support organizations to do that. So if you've got a harvest and you've got to pick that harvest uh, and you're running out of time, uh, your priority is to get workers to pick those potatoes or whatever it is immediately, and that brings some concerns with it. To invest in the machinery to do that is probably a better medium-term strategy, but you need support. You need people to give you advice, to tell you what technology to invest in, you know, and work that the RSA did some time ago. You know, we talk often breathlessly about AI and robotics and all these kinds of things. The vast majority of firms, in Britain, particularly SMEs, really aren't thinking a great deal about this. They just don't have the headspace and they're not investing the money. So if we want tighter immigration to lead to greater automation, we can't just wish for it to happen. We need to think about what are the things we need to put in place to support businesses to, to invest. And then very finally, sorry, I didn't mean to take all these points, but... Um, on health, I think health is an important component of good work. And I think one of the interesting challenges here is when we talked about health in the workplace in the past, we, we had a kind of thought about this in kind of physical injury terms, you know, accidents at work. Now, of course, we talk much more about, you know, um, mental uh, health issues, anxiety and stress and those kinds of things. So whilst in the past the kind of health at work agenda was was in a sense quite limited to well, what is actually dangerous and what can we do to avoid people being hurt physically at work. The broader agenda is about healthy workplaces as a whole, places where people enjoy their work, feel fulfilled, have voice, uh, and therefore are, are less likely to generate these kinds of things like anxiety uh, and stress. And you know, that's, that's a complicated, but I think potentially rich area for conversation when we, in the context of talking about good work and productivity. I, mean, I certainly support that last point. One of the things that came out of the work in Cambridge and Peterborough was how poor some of the companies were on dealing with health at work, and we certainly need to do much more on that. But I want to sort of try and heroically link up, in a sense, both their sort of migration, um, place-based, and um, points and, and other things together, which is that if we think about social care, which has obviously been making the headlines today because of its reliance on the workforce, this seems to me an area where the kind of approach that Richard Jones was talking about, where government helps to drive innovation, it also chimes with what Matthew was saying about government helping to drive innovation, would be very important. I find it very difficult to think that many of the people who run small health care units up and down the country are going to be able to move into the kind of help from robotics that you see in Japan, where, of course, they have this very aged population now. I know robotics sounds terrible and cold for caring for older people and you wouldn't want it to be a, the total answer, but you would want it to be part of the answer. And government has a real role to play there. Whether it can play it on the deadline that's now there is another question. But clearly this is a way that public, public procurement could really help to make that an industry that had got better productivity, had got better pay, and enable the people working in it to have more fulfilled jobs and indeed at the other, hopefully, old people to be better cared for, which is, of course, one of the scandals of our time. Andy, do you want to... Well, just maybe um, uh, give a few points. That, on health, um, so we were, very, we were drawing up our success metrics. We were very clear we wanted them to, to move beyond the wealth of nations 
to consider the health and happiness of nations too. So health is, is there among our success metrics. Those metrics are probably improved. I know you're doing uh, work yourself at the foundation, as I understand it, on the link between health and productivity. And we have um, some work planned on that front as well. So health is definitely uh, front and centre on our agenda as a um, success metric. You mentioned about joined upness and how to achieve it. Easy to talk about and hard to do. Uh, that's, plainly, uh, that's plainly true. Um, what might be avenues to make it less difficult? Well, one would be that I mentioned up there was the grand challenges as a natural coordinating uh, force across the different arms of policy. Uh, and others that have pursued this sort of mission-oriented approaches internationally have had some success in joining up the different arms of policy and government. The second would be to go local. It's actually rather easier to join up those different arms locally than it is nationally. And if you go to the parts of the country that are, I think are doing industrial strategy well, uh, let me give you an example, Greater Manchester. One of the reasons they are doing it well uh, is because they've been able to have a joined-up conversation about health, about transport, about social care, about FE and HE, uh, about transport, about local government, uh, and the like. So uh, therein, I mean, of the many cases that could be made for going local, the capacity to join up policy is an important one of them. On the question of longevity of policies, of course, that is tricky, um, necessarily tricky, uh, given the length of electoral cycle is not the same uh, as the length of time it takes to embed structural policies. Nonetheless, we've learned a lot, haven't we, over the last several decades about how to make policy in econo-speak more time consistent, consistent across time. Uh, when it comes to, say, Montreal fiscal policy, you know, among the ingredients to, to creating that longevity are, one, to have a, uh, a clear set of targets or at least lodestars for policy that can uh, secure a degree of accountability. Uh, and secondly, to have some body arm's length from the political process that can opine and in some cases set uh, policy uh, that is what, uh, in my day job, the NPC does in respect of monetary policy. It's what the OBR does in respect of fiscal policy. And it's one of the things the, the ISC uh, aims to do in respect of structural policy. And the case, if anything, if anything, is even stronger for structural policies than it is for monetary and fiscal ones, for the simple reason that the problems are deeper rooted uh, and take longer, therefore, uh, to... Uh, fix. Finally, on unions, um, as you probably know, unions, um, trade unions have very much been part uh, of the agenda, both of the strategy uh, as it was set up by government, but also um, of the council. We have a ruckus from community uh, on the council. A good chunk of my time, as Tim uh, knows, has been spent um, talking to the TUC, talking to ACAS. Just last week I was speaking to uh, union leaders, so absolutely we see uh, unions as being an important stakeholder uh, in crafting, designing and implementing this plan. Great. Well, thank you all very much. Unfortunately, we are now out of time, um, but thank you all very much for joining us, and please join me in thanking our excellent panel for their remarks. Thank you.